Amen. Amen. Uh, what a blessing it's been to have you lead us these five years. Um, absolutely incredible. You know, uh, Shalom and his kind of shared this vision over a year ago, so I've had time to get adjusted to my grief and feel mostly thankfulness. Uh, and I really do feel thankful to God for how he equipped him. And, and I was reminding him just a little less than six years ago, my wife and I took a group of college students under Rob and Lisa Chifakoyo's leadership to Zimbabwe to minister to them and dare to serve. And one of the first things we did is we went to Saturday night service and we heard this guy sing, but not just sing, but take songs and connect us vertically to God in a way that was just breathtaking. And we were between worship leaders at Covenant, and I, the thought did cross my mind, but I thought, you're insane. He's, that's, <laughs> but, I, but I just said to him, I said, you've got to just come and visit and lead worship. And he said, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to come to the States. And then he turned around to Lisa Chivakoy, and he says, I'm never doing that. <laughs> um, so, but the Holy Spirit heard him agree to do it. <laughs> Uh, and so what God forged there through a series of, you know, where God just dropped his calling card and brought Shalom. And these five years have been characterized by what we experienced there. And that really is, uh, as Shalom would regularly exhort us, that worship is not just a cute little thing that you go through and sing some songs and some lyrics. It's not just engaging, but it's an encounter. And God gifted you with the gifts of artistry and music and a, and a heart of passion for Christ. Um, and in thinking of a single verse that describes you, I think of the commendation Jesus gave to John the Baptist. And, and now you're really going out into the wilderness of the art, creative arts community. <laughs> but Jesus said of John the Baptist, he said he was a, both a burning and a shining light. He gave a clear witness, but also not just a clear and accurate witness, but there was a passion. And so we not only have been enlightened by your time, but we have been warmed by your fervent heart and by your passion. Uh, and so I'm just so grateful to God. I believe great things for you as we pray for you. I'm praying both the trials of not knowing exactly how it's going to unfold, but also the trials of success. And when you make it on The Voice, I'm going to be there for my finder's fee. Um, lined up. All of us will be, right? Uh, and we can say we knew him, but also that we were blessed and we received so much of your ministry. So I just want us to express our thankfulness to God for how he's raised up Shalom to minister to us. Yeah, very appropriate. Very appropriate. connection will not be seven and you know the people they will get their way they want you back to visit us so uh the songs that he sang of such depth and uh the one on job 38 to 42 i asked him to sing because i'm talking about suffering and i just want to encourage you get hold of that song and listen to it many times it's so much depth there but suffering is what in a sense makes us have to deal with reality right when you're going through suffering um, the, all the props that we lean for and derive joy and that help us have this sense of well-being, when they're taken away from us, uh, what's left often reveals what we're using to cope with life. Uh, I remember a, a good friend said, we ought to read Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and, I, and, and, and I, d I dug into it because Viktor Frankl wrote it in the midst of Auschwitz. 
and he's a trained psychiatrist. And he's looking at the fact that uh, in the midst of the horrid squalor and the impending, you know, torment that as the Nazis rounded up Jews, he, he is a psychiatrist because they didn't kill him all right away, right? The Nazis tried to wring every ounce of sweat and life and labor out of them first. But some people, some of the Jews who were, were quarantined into Auschwitz, they, they died quickly, not from hard labor, not from illness, but just from hopelessness. And others found this sense of purpose and meaning. And so, so Frankel's book is about like how that happens that he doesn't have the resources of the passage we're looking at. But, but he was asking the right questions because when suffering comes to us as it does, it, it always flattens us to the floor and we've got to ask that question. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter what you're suffering. When you are suffering, it just kind of consumes us. And, and Viktor Frankl has a very, a very sweet passage, I think, because you would think if I would not want to get in a conversation with Viktor Frankl about my suffering. Because he could say, yeah, well, at Auschwitz, right? <laughs> um, but he has this section where he says he doesn't belittle anybody else's suffering because he says suffering, when it comes into our lives, it's like this gas that permeates and diffuses and fills the room, fills the room of our brain, fills the room of our consciousness. And that's why if you've lost someone, another human being, a child, God forbid, or you have this deep, deep grief. Those are, those are extremely hard. But, and, and then someone who's a friend, they lose a pet. And they're like afraid to tell you, right? You don't even want to even bring it to the light of day. But he says, no, all suffering is real because it fills us. So like, you know, I might want to complain about, you know, plantar fasciitis, which prevents me from running the way I used to run. And like, like and someone else has this terminal degenerative disease. But the reality is all suffering's real. And all suffering tends to dominate and squeeze out the reality of God. And when people have been asked what have been the main thing that makes them grow in their relationship with God, and as a human being, you know, all the preachers looked at the poem and were like, hey, yeah, I'm sure it's my sermons, right? I'm sure it's the classes that we have and the discipleship path and all this. And in all of the polls that have been done, I don't know whether you participated in them, but the polls that have been done, everybody says, no, the main thing that shape my life is suffering. Now, hopefully those other things gave a voice and content to deal with, but suffering is what most shapes us when we think of those seasons of growth. And we're going to look at Romans 5, and we're going to look at three things in this text. I want you to look for them as we read it, but it says three things are important. If you're going to have joy in the midst of suffering, and that's going to be an indication if suffering kills your joy, then your purpose is not big enough. If suffering kills your joy, then your purpose is not big enough. But there are three things to get us not only through suffering to endure it, but to endure it with joy. We've got to understand our position, and Roman spends the most time on this. Second, we've got to have an experience of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. And three, we've got to have a purpose that lifts our gaze higher. And this text looks at all three of those, and I want you to see how it radiates with joy, especially these first five verses, Romans 5. It begins by saying, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame 
Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In, this, in these verses about purpose, you'll know, he, he he launches our, our attention to our position since we have been justified by faith. And here's the reality. When you or I are suffering, this is what comes under assault. Uh, you may say, well, what do you mean by that? Like, and, and, uh, here's the reality. You are all theologians, though you may not say you're a theologian, but you all, we all are. And when we're in the midst of suffering, we are trying to put together what is our status before God. If you say, well, this, I'm not a, even a believer in God, you might say. I, I got dragged here, <laughs> and I don't even believe in God. But I'm saying, functionally, you're looking, how do, why do I count? Why do I have significance? Where, where do I have permanence? And here's what, here's what God knows about us. And here's what Paul is explaining, that suffering is unbearable for us if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Suffering is unbearable unless you know that God is both for you but you also have to know he's with you in the midst of that. And I'm telling you that because though I preach this, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to need people around me to preach that to me in my hour. Because when suffering comes, it just feels like, well, it feels, first of all, like God is mad at us maybe. Or we're getting our comeuppance. Oh, we kind of always suspected God was this way. And finally, he gets us. And, and, and so, but that's a lie. And so we've got to bring out this verse I have been justified through faith. I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looked at holy and fully. I've been, I've been, so here's what Romans is saying. Spoiler alert, the whole book is this. Those who have been justified, those who have come to faith in Christ and have forgiveness pronounced over them, that is the verdict that the judge is gonna pronounce on the last day. And you can't mess it up. You can't screw it up. That the, to bring the joy that we will have in eternity into our present. And so he's, and also to take, the, to take the conviction that our present sense of status before God offered to us by justification. Justification means that the judge that should have condemned us looked at the evidence of our guilt and our guilt was real. Now look, if you struggle with feelings of guilt, then don't come to covenant. Go see a psychiatrist or psychologist. Because if you struggle with feelings of guilt, that's not what God deals with. He doesn't deal with feelings of guilt. He deals with real guilt. Because we're really objectively guilty. And we're not just broken people. We're rebels. We are. And, and, and so the gospel's made not to deal with these feelings of guilt, but with real guilt. And, and the judge looks at us, and we should have been condemned, and he looks at us, and he declares us to be righteous. Romans 4 says he justifies ungodly people. How can a judge who is just justify ungodly people on the basis of the justice that his son substituted himself at that place? That's why his argument goes on, and he says, 
very rarely will someone die for a good man, <laughs> for a good person. We, we have stories of that, right? Maybe, maybe someone sees someone drowning and they say, that's a good person going under the waters. And so they dive into the waters and they, they are able to bring them to shore and then they die of a cardiac arrest on the shore, but they died for a good person. That, that's heroic stories, right? But they didn't really die to save that person. They just, they just prevented that person's death on that day. They might get hit by a car tomorrow. <laughs> and, and they didn't really die voluntarily because they were going to die someday. They just volunteered to die a little bit earlier than they were going to die. But Jesus is different in both of those counts. First of all, Jesus never needed to be subject to the pains and horrors of pain, suffering, and death. He didn't live a life that owed death, that owed a death to God. We, we all owe nature a death because we're sinners. The power of death is sin. And, but, but Jesus never would have been subject, and he actually saves us and saves us forever so here's the reality of justification. Justification means we, God is just, but the justice comes at the cost and expense of Jesus fulfilling the just place. So our, what got us into this mess? We wanted to be our own lords. You know, if you've lived an immoral life, if you're a rule breaker, you have sinned primarily by wanting to be your own lord. You say, I'm not going to play by the rules that I know are right. I'm going to play my own rules. If you're a religious person, you've sinned against God by being your own savior. That's equally bad. Uh, it's kind of, it, Flannery O'Connor wrote about this in the novel Wise Blood. She talks about a character who says they wanted to avoid sin because they felt like if they could avoid sin, they could avoid Jesus. That's also very evil. Avoiding sin, I'm avoiding sin because I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want to have to say uncle to him. And, and so justification comes in. It says you are completely and fully pardoned. When I look at you, even though you substituted yourself for a place you did not deserve to be, to be your own Lord and Savior, the Lord and Savior of the world substituted himself to take on the life that you lived, and he put himself in the place that you deserve to be. And unless you know this positional, unless this is firing in terms of your position and your security, what it, what it does when we lack this is it creates this gap. And this is why, and any pastor who's been around for long, but if you've been around church for very long, this is why, if you're really honest, you can say church is one of the meanest places on earth. There's no place more mean than a church. And I'm not saying this about you only. I'm saying about anybody, because here's what happens in religious, where there's religious awareness. When you become a, when you become a Christian, what happens is your awareness of the life that you should live, it goes way up. And you all of a sudden, your conscience is firing. Last week's sermon by Rob Chivacori about our conscience. Our conscience is alternatively either acquitting us or condemning us. And we're doing this all the time. We're sizing up other people and we're comparing because our conscience, if we aren't living fully satisfied in the free justification of Christ, our, we are looking for an identity based on something else. And so if we're not living out of justification by faith alone through Christ alone, resulting in joy and freedom and life and love, we are living on justification in some other way. And the way we justify ourselves generally is by our conscience acquitting us when we see somebody else who screwed up more. And that feeds the whole dynamic of gossip. And you don't have, you don't have to even verbalize gossip. You can just say, I want to read that article about that Christian who really screwed up so that I can feel better about myself. 
You know what? You can, in, in the church, you can even learn how to gossip in a way that makes you feel good about yourself because you can cloak it as a prayer request. Hey, you know, you got to pray for so-and-so in their marriage because, right? That, that's, and so your conscience, when it's, on, when it's on, like the old cell phones used to roam for a connection, when you're not connected to your free justification in Christ, fully declared righteous, your conscience is looking for something else to boot off of. And, he, and that's why Paul wrote the Galatian church because they were losing their sense of free justification. He says, you are going to bite and devour one another. You're going to consume one another because you aren't living out of the free justification that you have in Jesus Christ. So you see how practical this is because this is where, this is where our sense of well-being comes from is when we're rooted in the justification of Jesus Christ. It, it, it transforms us. This, this is the most uncultic doctrine. No cult holds to this doctrine. No cult uh, articulates this doctrine because what does a cult need to survive? They need to prop up the middleman and the go-between and the little rituals and the secret handshakes and the, yeah, maybe some other organizations and groups and, and uh, love Jesus, but they don't love Jesus the way we love Jesus. <laughs> you need to get on the good team. We've got the brand name. That's the cult mentality. You know what this does? It says, nope, nobody has an inside track. And you don't need a middle person. You, you don't need a go-between. You don't have to play and, and go through all of these little rites and rituals. It's go directly to God through Jesus Christ. And look what he says. We have peace with God and through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The most uncultic thing, the thing that will uncult the cults is grace that says, no, it's free, you're free. You're even free to dissent. You're free to be authentic. You're free to grow in process. And he says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God that we've received through our faith in Jesus Christ. So, so having this position when you're suffering, because again, when you're, when you're suffering, that's when these things come in. And so you've got to understand these things in your position. But then I want you just to look down at verse five. It can't just be a doctrine. You can't, I've known, I mean, some of the people who have, who are now the, in the furthest position away from this used to be people who could teach this perceptively and theologically. But verse 5 says this has to be experienced. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You know, this is the first time in Romans 5th chapter that he mentions God's love. The whole book is about God's love. But he had to build up to it and he's saying, the way we know God's love is the Holy Spirit has to minister and, and open this up to us. I think this is something subsequent to saving faith when you first come to faith in Christ. Although sometimes it can happen at that very moment. And a person is filled with what Peter, 1 Peter says, it says, though you do not see him, you believe in him, and you were filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy. Sometimes it happens then, but I think it often comes subsequently. It often comes as a kind of secondary blessing. And I don't think it's just a second blessing because I think it happens a third and a fourth and a fifth and a hundredth and a thousandth and a ten thousandth time. I think this is the passion of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to convince us that we really are the beloved of God, that God loves us completely and thoroughly and only always ever acts toward love for us. Because in our own conscience, we think, well, uh, I can tell other people God loves them, but huh, I know stuff about myself. God knows it too. That's why Jesus went to the cross for your real guilt, not your fake guilt. 
not just your psychological guilt, your real guilt. And he went there knowing all of that. And so do you see this passage says that it takes the, all of the energies of the entire Trinity to put us on this platform in this position and to give us an experience of well-being. It took the Father declaring us righteous. It took the Son offering himself freely. And it takes the Spirit of Christ to, to pour out into our hearts. You see, the Holy Spirit pouring out into our hearts, the center of our being, the love of God. And he says, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. That is astounding news. And, and so it's in this sense that we are able then when we suffer, when, when we're in the midst of suffering, this is our greatest need. This is our greatest need. Um, and, and so then he brings us back to this purpose. When we have those, those two things going, we can look at, at verse three and he says, not only so we glory in our sufferings. Now there, there is teaching in the world today that says if you really, really have faith, you won't suffer. But this verse, this verse says the opposite. The, the reality is that we've all already boarded the Titanic and we can't get off. We don't know when the iceberg is going to hit or when we're going to strike the iceberg, but no matter how much we try to manage our wealth and our health and our relationships, eventually something is going to spoil it. I know that's really an encouraging message. Thank you. <laughs> um, you're welcome. But that is the reality. Um, uh, eventually something, no matter how much we strive, will come along to spoil it. And, and, and yet it doesn't spoil it when we have the hope of glory and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we can walk through it. And this, again, this is, this is what we need when we're going through trials. We need people to declare to us, God loves us. Are you opening your heart to the, the witness of the Holy Spirit? And many times you don't have to even use words. You just, when you show up and embrace and walk through you are, in a sense, the arms and feet and hands of Jesus saying, God hasn't left you. People don't need that sermon, but they need the presence. But so, so he's saying there's a higher purpose that you can embrace. He says we glory in our sufferings. Now, I don't think, he's not saying our sufferings are good. Sufferings came about because of the fall. And sufferings aren't in themselves good, but he says they're instrumentally good. Now, I happen to really like my dentist, so I would go and hang out with my dentist. He's very cool, a really good dentist. But uh, I would say most of us, when we go see the dentist, we don't say, yay, I get my tooth drilled or, you know, my teeth sawed away on. Um, but we want good teeth. It's instrumentally good, right? <laughs> we want to be able to chew. We want to uh, not have a toothache. So it's instrumentally a good thing. Suffering is like that. Instrumentally, in the hands of God, suffering is is meant to bring us to a better place. And so here he's saying, we can glory in our sufferings because suffering is transforming us into the image of the one who loved us. Suffering is turning us into love. Because Jesus, if there's ever an act of suffering that doesn't make sense, it's when the only innocent who ever walked this planet, the only perfectly radiant person who never was tainted with any sin in his attitude, thoughts, or being, not even a sinful thought or, re, or a sinful retort, he didn't even have to suppress it. And he received the most hideous, horrible suffering that we cannot even imagine. Nature itself, when they saw him on the cross, nature itself turned dark. It couldn't bear it. Um, and if that the, were the most horrible injustice ever actually contributed to the greatest good ever, 
it, it gives us the power in a sense to say there's, there can be a purpose that redeems suffering. And, and, and here's, here's what's very interesting in, in Frankel's book. He talks about Auschwitz. And he says this, he says, for what, what Auschwitz ushered people in, very professional people, doctors, lawyers, um, all kinds of occupations that thought they had their security together and then they're, they're quarantined in this hellhole. And they're faced with the reality that forces beyond their control can take away everything they possess, their freedom, what they ate, how they dressed, their dignity. Forces beyond their control can take away absolutely everything, including their loved ones. And he says it can take away everything in your life except for one thing. And he gets this right, I think. He says, the one thing that all of those forces take away from us, but, but is left to us. The one thing that is still left to us is that you can't control what happens to you and what you're suffering and where your trial is, but you can make a choice about what you're going to do with it. I mean, we're all going to have different degrees of suffering, and it's guaranteed to come. We're all going to have our 40 years in the wilderness or our 40 days or whatever it is. We don't get to choose that. But we do get to make the choice and say, am I going to go the, through the wilderness and through the desert times saying, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to die of thirst and starvation. This is horrible. Are we going to walk through the wilderness that way? Or are we going to walk through the wilderness saying, I have peace with God. I have the love of the Holy Spirit and I am looking for how God is going to use this as a stage to launch his glory and to change me more and more into the image of love. When, when, you, when you have that, and this, this was one of the, this was the difference. He said, those who had no, no sense of this, and he didn't have the resources of Romans firing in his heart, but those who had no sense of it, the collapsed, gave up, died of a broken heart. But those who had a sense of saying, I'm going to go through this in a way that has redemptive value. For him, he says, I'm going to learn things about the human spirit I could never learn. Um, for us, it's though we can be transformed into the image of the one who we're meant to be like, into the arms of his love. And so it, it transforms and changes us in that moment. And that's, that's how we get through suffering. That's how we have a purpose that, is, that matches the challenge. We're going to come in our time to close this service in the Lord's Supper. And I want us to make this a time where these emblems of Christ's love are brought home to us. The Bible says it's a participation in the spirit of what Christ accomplished for us. And so I want you to, if you've been struggling with suffering, to ask God to convey to you his love, his purpose, his warmth, to give you an experiential warmth and reality, a sense of reality toward his love, to enable you to freshly surrender to it and to amplify the sense of purpose as you walk through it and to raise your position, your experience, and your purpose. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come before you. We thank you that your passion is to declare to us your great love for us in Christ, the security of our position, and so we ask that you would, you would minister to us in our, in our honest void, in our hurt. Prepare us, O oh God, to walk with a characteristic that only you can accomplish in us, that kind of joy. 
despite and beyond and above our circumstances and minister to us out of the resources of your Holy Spirit, taking the atoning work of Jesus, taking the cross and saying, this was for you because this is how I love you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.